Oh, hi, y'all, and welcome to I Remember This Cassette, the podcast about remembering cassettes. It's me, your boy Kyle, and here we are, beginning year number two of the podcast, where I watch movies. I don't watch movies. I mean, I've watched movies, then let it stew and fester in my brain for a decade, and then... I just whip out whatever I remember and hope for the best. Doing it for a year now. Uh, and we're starting, we're doing October as a theme month. And as I'm sure many of you all know, October is the hauntingest, spookiest, altogether ookiest month. I have accidentally made two Adams Family references in the past minute, which this episode's only a minute in. And I know you're all thinking this sounds like, oh, wow, it's going to be Adam's Family Month. Because, no, no, it isn't. I've actually done that on complete accident. Um, but it is Spooky Month. But I, I, I'm going to go away from spooky intellectual properties like Adam's Family. And I don't know what other movies that have been made that really would fit the mold of being spooky. I, outside of horror movies, of course... Or like the Goosebumps movies, but those movies... The first Goosebumps movie hasn't come out until 2015, so good luck me ever touching that. Um, but no. Uh, horror movies are not my cup of tea. I, straight up, as a person, do not enjoy horror movies. Mostly because I am a massive cynic and sad boy extraordinaire. And I just... Uh, flip my hair to the side and said the world is sad enough as it is. The world's already horrifying. I don't need to watch movies to see the horrors of this world. I just need to live another day. And then I go listen to AFI for a solid week. Just kidding. No, I'm more of a uh, My Chemical Romance kind of guy when I get my emo music on. Which is surprisingly often. Uh, but no, I seriously am not a fan of scary I mean, slasher movies, that's just not my bag. Um, I think I've accidentally sat through a few of them, and maybe I'll try, like, Nightmare on Elm Street up for size, like, a few years down the, like, a year down the road, next October Halloween Spooktoberfest. No, uh, my theme for october Ober is just, um, recollections of Movies that are exemplary of the scariest decade of them all. The 80s. That's right. For Halloween, I'm just doing 80s movies. <laughs> Live action ones. And uh, my rationale behind that, I've done a couple of 80s movies and hit upon them. I've also hit upon my absolute distaste and disgust for the decade. Uh, as a better podcast than I has once said, the 80s should go to jail, as well they should. And so many movies that come from that decade or are inspired that, by that decade are just awful things that I watched and just scare me on how people thought that, from a cultural standpoint, the, the, the tropes and idioms and messages that they portrayed were okie-dokie and also popular. So, um... Yeah, the first movie I'm going to do for this is actually the other movie that was requested for me back on 4th of July week. If you'll spin the clock back to my 4th of July episode, which was Sandlot, which is only like five episodes ago because 
I haven't made that much content since July, I guess. But two movies were requested. One of them was Blues Brothers, which I did shortly after. A good episode. Ah, well, everything I do is a good episode except for the Spider-Man one. But uh, everything is... I mean, I have to toot my own horn because if nobody toots your horn, you may as well blow yourself. But, uh, the other movie that was requested by some person in Pennsylvania that I will tell this episode is being made. I don't think they're an actual listener of the podcast, but maybe, just maybe, I can make a listener out of them, and then they'll tell their friends, and their friends will tell five of their friends, otherwise a scary girl with big hair and uh, Olivia Newton-John, oh, I'm sorry, was it Olivia Newton-John? Who's the one that did physical? Let's get physical, physical. And they, and they spandex fantastic for the rest of the decade. She will appear at the side of your bed at 3.30 in the morning and make you do... Uh, dances. Is it Olivia Newton-John? This is going to drive me mad. Who, pray tell, was the person that did physical? I know she had a hyphenated last name. I don't know. That's not the point of the story. Look, you, you just, you, the, the, what podcast and content creation is all about is word of mouth, which I tell you at the end of every episode, but you've probably tuned out by then. For the love of God, like, comment, subscribe to this podcast. I will tell you at the front of the episode this time, because that's the way the game is played, I guess. And especially people that are getting into this podcast because I'm actually doing requests. So I did the Blues Brothers request, and finally, at long last, after three plus months of waiting, I'm doing the other request, and that movie is E.T. with Robots, better known as Short Circuit. Ha. I love, you know we're in for fun when I say the movie out loud and realize, ah, oh, crap, this is what I'm doing. When I realize, oh, no, I'm in for one of those movies and I finally just say, I'm doing it and nothing's going to stop me except for a celebrity death, then I nothing stops when I say it out loud and, oh, shit, I'm doing it. Yep, it's short circuit. Yeah. All right, let's get some background on it and jump in. To this modern day Pinocchio story. Alright, so to understand why Short Circuit exists, I think we have to go back a couple of years. Because uh, Short Circuit, I believe, came out in 1985. And, but every movie about a non human companion or a puppet that it is handed around during the holiday season all spawns from the movie that killed every movie ever made. The movie that killed movies, E.T., which came out in 1983, and it was the highest grossing movie until Titanic came out. No, was it Titanic that wrecked it? No, it was a re-release of Star Wars or something, but E.T. was the first this summer blockbuster ever and made movies about spectacle and gimmicks rather than actual good content, which is what the 70s were all about, the auteur, the artist behind making films, and 70s movies, 70s cinema, magnificent, 80s trash, and it's because of Steven Spielberg. Um, he, I mean, it's, it's because of capitalism ultimately, but Steven Spielberg knew how to play the game. He is not, he's a visionary capitalist, is what Steven Spielberg is, and the one that put him for real on the map was frickin' E.T. And that's the movie about some little puppet thing that enters 
the real world and befriends a small child and everybody thought it was adorable and then every other boardroom of movie makers said, okay, how do we make this but not this? What else is on the list? Uh, what if we do E.T., but there's bad ETs, and they're just creatures that aren't necessarily aliens. All right, uh, what's the gimmick? Um, the bad ones screw with electronics, and we'll call them gremlins. Close enough, but far enough. Stamp, Nin- Christmas 1984, gremlins comes out, and it invents the PG-13 rating. Uh, I don't know, lots of other things. But you know what wasn't touched? Robots. So the moment that... uh. E.T. was successful. They said, what if we do a thing about robots, where a robot befriends a person in the real world, and the government's coming after them, and uh, someone has to save the day. But instead of making it a small child, let's make it a hot chick. And the board members rub their beards, and then the, the guy the guy at the end of the table, the fat cat with the cigar, sticks it in his mouth, puts his feet up on the giant birch desk, not birch desk, who makes a desk out of birch? The giant long oak varnish desk and says, as an idea that's gonna make a couple million dollars, you're gonna go far in this business, kid. What's your name? And then he reveals his name as the name of the writer of Short Circuit, who I don't actually remember. And from there, Short Circuit was born and they put a whole lot of money into making like the robot that was in there, some big animatronic, robot-looking thing that was supposed to be as iconic as E.T. from the movie E.T. And, I mean, yes, I I don't think it was nearly the monumental success that E.T. was, but, I mean, it's, as robot movies go, it's it's still pretty memorable, and, like, it still gets its... It it got mentioned in Ready Player One, which, if, if it did that, that means it passes the 80s test of being relevant in the 80s, because Ready Player One, if it name-dropped them, if it didn't name-drop them, you have failed as an 80s franchise, but I, I believe uh, the robot from Short Circuit did get a name-drop in Ready Player One, which, by the way, got directed and brought Sir Stevie out of retirement to bring this whole thing full circle. So, uh... You know, technically, under all rules of I Remember This Cassette, um, I can technically do Ready Player One as an episode. Um, though, I mean, outside of the whole decade thing, but uh, y- never mind. It, it just put the pieces together and realize the kind of circumstances under which I watched the beloved movie Ready Player One. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about Short Circuit. Look, the story of that is it came out uh, we recorded it off a of cable sometime in the late 90s. My brother, who is essentially the anti-me, if you've ever met him, he looks almost like me. If I get my hair done right, I look like him. But personality-wise, I, I can't think of somebody more diametrically opposed to me. He gets along with everybody. He has an infatuation and love of 80s and the movies. Whereas I am... A, mis- a misanthrope and I despise everybody I hate everything about the 80s and ultimately I hate movies um and yeah it's pretty fun but he likes this movie my brother kind of liked this movie so he had it on cassette and he'd watch it fairly often and I guess I'd sit in be- 
and watch it from time to time before I got bored and we got an internet connection in our house and I fudged off and did something else for another 20 years. Well, no, 15 years. It hasn't been that long. Uh, yes, it, it, by that time, we'd watched it a few times, but I don't think I've seen it in its entirety since, like, junior high or something like that. Um... Uh, I don't remember anybody that stars in the movie except for Fisher Stevens, and we'll get to him and his wonderful, wonderful role when he shows up in the movie. Luckily, that's pretty early on, but this is this is going to be delightful. Ah, it's a movie about love and romance and robots, and it sure is the '80s. The movie, Part One of Four. Let's get to it. Short circuit, baby. The movie starts with the theme song for Masterpiece Theater playing and a camera going through an old stuffy library, of course, just like in the TV show Masterpiece Theater. Um, then it just zooms in on a shelf that says movies about, uh, well, it says movies about robots, but the word movies is crossed out and it says stories. Or it might have been the other way around. I don't know, it's been 15 years. Uh, but it zooms it on the shelf. A book flies off the shelf. It says short circuit on the front. The book opens. And we start our magical adventure. As most magical adventures pertaining to robots or robot adjacent individuals. See Inspector Gadget. Um, starts. Which is some generic company. Where they're unveiling the newest robots. That of course... They advertise as, totally not going to become sentient. Don't you worry about a thing, people. Flesh bags, meat bags, whatever, one of those things. And it says that um, there's a shit ton of exposition wherein the big boss of the company, uh, Jonathan Dumbface. No, Jonathan, I don't know. I don't know the head of the company's name. I don't know anyone's name in this movie, except for the girl and, I guess, the robot, which technically it isn't that name. Ah, so uh, they reveal their lines of killer robots that can do stuff like wash dishes and, I don't know, I think they're learning machines, so I don't know what they were expecting over at OCP that these machines wouldn't come to life and overthrow everybody and they can just cross their fingers and toes that shit doesn't go wrong. Uh, so at the site are a crap ton of people, all right? Uh, there is Hot Scientist Guy, uh, which is her name is, his full name is Guy Hot Scientist, but he's one of those weirdos that prefers to go by his middle and last name and put his first name first, last. So, everyone just calls him Hot Scientist Guy. And he's played by generic 80s protagonist man. I don't know who it is. I honestly don't care who it is, and neither should you, dear audience. He's there with his sidekick, basically his sidekick, um, the always wonderful and always tasteful Fisher Stevens as the technolo technology guy, who is very Indian, uh, as in the nationality, in natives or natives, damn it, or indigenous people. No, he's from India. Except Fisher Stevens is very much not from India, but you could have fooled me with that beloved broken English and accent and, oh my god, is that a little bit of brown on your face when you play this character? 
this guy that clearly came from some other country is better at programming than any European-born individual. And so let's just get some European-born individual to play him because, hell no, we're not hiring and paying for an Indian. They may not be able to read our script. The nerve of that. Gah! Ronald Reagan paid us $10,000 and funded us to make sure that we have no people that aren't white in this movie. I mean, actors. It's imperative that we have diversity, but we can't have diversity. There's the good kind and the bad kind. And when it comes to the 80s, everything's the bad kind. Uh, Also, there is a journalist named Stephanie. And she wisely talks with uh, the hot scientist guy and says, are you sure these robots won't come to life and mess with everything? And then he says, no, uh, that's what our job is, to make sure that they don't do that. Uh, Look at our line of machines. They're, like, called the T-01s, and it goes, like, one through nine. They all look exactly the same. They're six-foot-tall things that are surprisingly expressive, probably the same technology that Furbies were, that were used to make Furbies with a B 12 years later. Um because they've got expressive eyes that are also headlights. Uh, they got arms to reach out and strangle somebody if they somehow gain sentience in a bad sort of way. Uh, tank treads for rolling upstairs so they won't end up like the ED-209 in Inspector Gadget. <laughs> Almost broke one of the best running gags on the series. Ah, look. Ah, <laughs> uh, Lightning strikes the building during the press conference, but they can't cancel the press conference. They'd have to roll all the robots back into the building or truck or something. And lightning strikes one of them, and it sets off a, dare I say, short circuit at roll credits. And uh, while, of course, it's convincing enough that they haven't come to life, uh, the guy comes to life. He's voiced by, I don't know who, some guy that probably never worked in Hollywood again because he has such a distinct voice and they say well unless we make another short circuit movie you'll never be able to do another voice because you're going to be so popular that everyone's going to say aren't you that robot from short circuit and that guy went home and drank a bunch of whiskey and I don't know who he is but I can just tell he died of cirrhosis sometime in the late 90s Uh, he mumbles to himself like some guy that is stumbling out of a hangover, like, as a person that is going to die from cirrhosis in the late 90s, is want to do. So he's just preparing himself for that meaty role that's yet to come. And he fudges off into the news van that is run by our protagonist, the always pretty, because that's what it's all about, female lead, who I don't know who she's played by, but her her name's Stephanie, because that robot just keeps saying her goddamn name. Well, that doesn't happen yet. That'll happen pretty soon. It is not soon after that our friends in the science community realize, oh, one of their learning machine robots is missing. And uh, we didn't tell it to go missing yet. And I'm pretty sure it got struck by lightning at some point. So that's two weird things that happened. And they at least have the common courtesy in this universe where 
lightning brings robots to life, to realize that there's no such thing as two coincidences, is, and chances are lightning has made that robot act funny, or just go against its programming, and fudge off to someplace else. And what is this someplace else, you in the audience may be wondering? Well, uh, the journalist, this comes from back in a time where people just took their news journalist vans and go home to their farmhouses and just sleep it off there instead of returning it to, I don't know, the newspaper channel, news channel, that's it, TV station that drive their own personal vehicle home. Nope, they're an independent journalist, and it comes from a time when journalism could be independent and not reliant upon TV stations nor newspapers owned by the same corporations. Thank you so much, Ronald Reagan and pals. At least you had the common courtesy to show us those sweet, sweet years when journalism could have been done on an individual level and people had independent agency. But those days are long gone. Ah, meanwhile, back at Miss Independence House, uh, <laughs> a, the robot, number five, has escaped from the confines of the news van that he fudged his way into, and in a bit of comedy, <laughs> um, gets into the house, and uh, Stephanie just does her daily routine of getting ready for work, and leaves the uh, robot there alone because she, in her workaholic 80s go-go ways, completely misses out on uh, the robot being there, even though it's like seven feet tall and looks like a goddamn tank. But now the robot, dear audience, has been left to its own devices, and uh, as they explained in exposition mode at the beginning of the movie, these robots are learning machines, so they learn by... Uh, whatever they take in, whether it be books or movies or television or whatever is placed in front of their optic sensors, which, because they're trying to make the robots as humanoid and cute as possible, like, I, I, I don't know about cute, uh, but endearing is the word I'm looking for. They look humanoid and their optic sensors also happen to be their eyes, even though their eyes are flashlights. Riddle me that, Batman, how that's supposed to work out, but uh, that's how things worked out. So, right, Miss Independent just left her bachelorette pad television on, and the robot's just going around reading books at a lightning-fast pace, almost as fast as Rain Man will in three years. Oh, that's a great movie. Uh, but he's just, like, flipping through them, just taking in books, and he's talking, oh, I need input. Give robot input. Korg want film. And the TV's on, so the robot's just watching uh, whatever talk show is on in 1985. And there's commercials for, like, Wrigley Gum and Dr. Pepper and crap. And the robot is... He doesn't have that name yet. I almost said his name, but that's, that's the final plot twist of the film. Like, it's literally the last line of the movie when the robot gives away his new name. So number five is his name. Just remember he's, like... Famous cryptoid Lou Bega, 15 years from there, makes a song called Mambo Number no. 5. This robot's name is Number 5, and he's alive. Ah! So, Number 5, reading books, reading, like, cooking 
magazines because she's trying to learn like the Oprah cookbook or something, even though Oprah doesn't exist for another year. But she's watching, he's watching TV and stuff, and that's all of his input. So he's basically a learning machine that is learning how to be a human in 1985. And there's just a bunch of comic things about he's watching commercials and learning catchphrases, but not catchphrases that are original to the movie, catchphrases that some other advertising agency came up with. Like, hey, would you like a Coca-Cola? I believe that was Coca-Cola's um, slogan in 1985. If it wasn't, it is now. And um, so eventually Stephanie comes home from doing her reporting on uh, Globotech or whatever the name of the company is. And uh, they're really concerned about, oh, one of our learning machines has gone missing, as I mentioned earlier. That's crazy. And she said, well, that's something worth reporting on. Uh, that'll be quite the scoop. Just keep me posted as stuff happens. And they're like, okay. Uh, hot scientist guy winks and gives her a number. If there's any breakthroughs, let me know. Uh, this, this phone number will actually be important later on for contact purposes. Uh, but he's just hitting on her. It's just what people did because she's hot he's hot, maybe they'll hook up by the end of the movie. <laughs> of which your means, because it's essentially a family film uh, for all ages, oh, they totally will. You don't just expend flirtation on two my, re relatively attractive people in either their mid-20s to early 30s and don't have them hook up and imply to get married by the end of the film. That's just not how this stuff works. And then um, she goes home and uh, walks in the front door of her house and there's number five there saying, hey, would you like a Coca-Cola? And she screams and he screams and there's just a whole lot of screaming. Not unlike when that little boy found that alien in his pile of laundry not so many years ago. So because, despite of the entire premise of this movie being ridiculously dumb, uh, the writers and everyone in charge, at least, again, gives their audience some degree of intelligence, Stephanie, without having to say it out loud, puts two and two together, and then says it out loud and deduces that, oh, the robot that's in her living room is the robot that disappeared from the site she was at yesterday when she was reporting on this company that was making learning robots and somehow it has ended up on her property and she says oh hi there <laughs> and she's worried that this robot will frag her ass because she is again a sensible individual strong and independent and not needing any man but will probably end up by probably I mean will certainly end up now that she's gotten that card with the phone number on it uh, will end up with uh, by the end of the movie she says oh hi my name is Stephanie and you are and number five picking up the logic that uh, was clearly written in Back to the Future uh, decides his name is number five because that's the thing that appears on the side of him because he thinks he's a living breathing human or is at least a sentient being that is at least given the same right to life that is given to humans. So uh, he says, oh, my name is number five. 
and he quotes some movie that was on. I think John Wayne was on, like, cowboy movies. Whatever daytime television was, because daytime television is uh, fantastic in the 80s, because that's back when there were only three channels or cable TV. Either way, there wasn't anything called quality programming, so everything that Number 5 has learned so far is from unquality programming that is on during the daytime hours that a woman was out of her farmhouse and left the TV on on accident could watch or cookbooks and People magazine that was just lying around the house for those long hours and I guess literary classics that he also likes to quote so after all that cleverness the only questions I mean, he, he's also had, understands that he's being programmed to learn so he's trying to learn as much as possible and um she decides uh, to call uh, Novacorp. That was it. I just honestly remembered. It's called Novacorp. She says, okay, I'm going to call Novacorp and get this figured out. And then number five is like, no, you can't call them. They'll kill me. <laughs> no, I'm Not kill me, but they will disassemble me. And disassemble is a word for dead. Because um, I think, oh, no, no, no. She, like, explains, oh, you're the robot that's lost. She explains who he is in life and what happened. Oh, you got struck by lightning, your programming's on the fritz, and now you just want to learn everything rather than learn what we want you to learn, you little robot thing. And he says, well, what's the problem with that? Can't I obey the rules of robotics and be a learning machine and learn everything? I totally have the processing power and data banks in 1985 to totally remember all of that. Huh. If you call them, and as Hot Science Guy and uh, Fisher Stevens as Apu learn, taught them, like, no, we'll just take you apart, put you back together, and start over good as new, minus the uh, weirdness that caused him to disappear. Because they don't realize that he's alive. They just know something's wrong with the programming. And so when she says disassemble and reassemble, he just goes off the rails and says, no, I, I don't want to die. I don't know why I'm not bothering with the number five voice anymore, and I'm just turning into screechy Curtis Armstrong, Weird Al Yankovic hyper, uh, hybrid voice that I do whenever I get anxious, which on this podcast is fairly often. But no, he's getting that voice. But I don't want to die. No disassemble. No bueno. No use phone. And he cuts all the phone. He wants to cut the phone line to the house. But, um... He, she decides, oh, you're a learning machine. Here, I have this copy of War and Peace in my car. Why don't you read through that for a little bit? And this is basically an excuse, not unlike, I don't know, Silence of the Lambs six years later, to keep the dangerous living being occupied so she can make a phone call to the proper authorities and remove this threat level red from her property. Um, unfortunately, things don't go well for... Uh, Stephanie, not like get dead in a way, but this robot is so advanced that when they hand War and Peace to her, because that was like the definitive long book that takes a while to read, um, he blazes through it before she can even get to the one phone in the house, because again, it's the 80s, you don't have a phone in every room, and you certainly don't have a phone in your pocket, kids these days. This movie could never be remade in the year of our alleged savior, 2019. Though, I mean, we've tried. We've really tried. 
we made like those things on Twitter that are like learning machines and if they just tried to remake uh, Short Circuit in 2019 or any time after 2010 essentially uh, we'd just have Siri and we'd also have those robots that just get told facts and information and words to be used in um, by users of the internet so they just become racist so it, instead if we just had like Stephanie walk in we would just have number 5 saying hey baby welcome home you wanna make some fuck and she would scream, he would scream, and everything would be the same, but he'd just be a lot more racist. So, uh, no, you can't remake this movie. Also, if they did remake it, they'd still have a white person playing an Indian, which, again, we at least try and move away from to an extent. Uh, she, however, makes the phone call saying she's ordering a pizza, and then he gives, like, the... Uh, catchphrase of Pizza Hut, which is, hey baby, you want a Pizza Hut? Pizza, pizza. And she, instead of calling for pizza, she uh, calls for a man to help save her because she's a damsel in distress now. And they realize, okay, let's head over. And she also says, but don't tell your bosses. I think he doesn't want to die. And he says to his friend, this is more serious than I thought. And then um, his friend Fisher Stevens says something about the many arms of Vishnu because classy. So here they come in a company vehicle, hot science guy and his trusty stereotypical sidekick to examine what went on with their masterpiece because I'm pretty sure like Fisher Stevens was the head scientist guy which is why he has to be around. Other than, of course, for those hilarious bits of broken English that that wonderful champion of our adventure espouts every scene that he's in. But Hot Science Guy, I think, also was a co-programmer or something. But he's mostly there to look pretty because, God help us, the Russians win if our hot female somewhere between the age of 25 and 33 female protagonist ends up marrying the intelligent Indian man who's admittedly not played an Indian but he, she has to end up with the white guy damn it it's the 80s we can't have these things until uh, until the revolutionary film the bodyguard ultimately saves everything by having that sort of casual mixing of the races can't have that no, it's a family film. Speaking of which, uh, there's argumentation about um, how... No, num number five can't be disassembled, even if he is reassembled. He's still alive, and resurrection is, isn't his thing. Like, I believe, for real, uh, Fisher Stevens talks about resurrection because that is a core belief of Hinduism, which is what his character totally believes. And, um, then Hot Science Guy says, well, no, I mean, it's not that bad. You're, you're still going to be a learning machine. You'll just be put back together. We're not, like, totally locking you in a Superman vault or anything like that. He says, growing increasingly sweaty and his eyes darting back and forth, which, dear audience, means that is totally what they have in mind. But he says, I 
number five's just not having it. He says, no, I like the life I have right now. I have a right to live as a sentient being. I will not be an instrument of destruction because, yeah, I mean, I'm a robot that's built to learn. What kind of idiot do you take me for? I'm sorry. What kind of idiot do you take me for? I don't want to be a machine of destruction that learns the tactics of war. I want to learn commercialism and spouting catchphrases. Go ahead. Make my day. Ha ha ha. Oh, God. Definitely, Furbies were totally inspired by this movie. It's, it's just so obvious. But, uh, while there's some sort of convincing being had, and I'm pretty sure number five somehow gets a Bible and reads through it really quick, and he learns about, like, Jesus and everything, because there are definitely coded messages of religiousness, but the correct religion is, of course, the American religion, which is that of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, which there's... Uh, allusions to in that, oh, no, there's resurrection, you'll come back, but we just have to kill you first. And it'll take about, I don't know, three days to finish the job. And he says, well, no, I don't want to do that. This is the 80s, not Jesus times. I can still be around, you a-holes. But, again, company vehicles and tracking or something had a tail on them. Uh, Nova Corp somehow deduces that their missing robot ended up on this farmhouse thing and uh, they want to get their thing back. So now the government or the scientists or, you know, whoever the bad guys are in these movies about a non-human lovable thing um, ending up with equally lovable human beings, the scientists or the military or government or whoever, why not all of them uh, show up to ruin everything and take that robot alive to make him dead and then make him alive again to go back to his original programming, which, guess what, is to be a military machine because what I have withheld from you because I don't think I remembered it and what may have been withheld from the audience who may or may not have remembered it, but I sure didn't, was that Nova Corp is a military contractor, which means they were built to beat up Russians and fire weapons or something, and um, they realize, uh, I mean, when all the other machines show up and uh, point their guns at number five, he suddenly feels threatened, and he starts shooting back at them much to his (laughs) chagrin and then the military comes in and uh, they realize there's a dangerous weapon there and if they don't do the right thing uh, this could be a real incident that might result in this small quaint farmhouse getting blasted to smithereens So, um, they all bunker down and make a plan on how Johnny Five, which is not his name yet, um, number five, has the right to live and not be blown up along with his new friends who, by extension, also have a right to live. But before they send in, like, nukes or anything, they have to send in Johnny Five. 
God. Number five's other friends from the assembly line. Let's go. And dear audience, I know I missed a lot of stuff where um, hot science guy and attractive journalist Stephanie like establish a rapport and a relationship that will inevitably get them hooked up by the end of the movie with John number five playing as the mediator. I don't care about that stuff. Like, it was all that's all it was for the entire second act of the movie. Because I basically jumped from Act 1 to Act 3, and I am fully aware of this. But it's literally just unnecessary whimsy built in the footsteps of E.T. Because they're trying to raise the stakes. Because, eh, children are boring. That's more of a Spielberg thing. Let's get some actual romance between a man and a woman in here. Like, that's what we're really all about. And getting stuff instead of families. We can still get families in there because... Our robot is going to be the one that the kids can relate to. And this is definitely about adoption. This movie is about adopting an uh, uh, unusual child. Because this child, in this case, is a robot. Quaint wants to learn, brings two separated people together because... Essentially, the mom taught him every... Not the mom. Look at me calling the mom. Essentially... Uh, the journalist is the mother role who taught him everything, but the, the father, the hot science guy, gave him life and a corporeal form and a reason to be. So, oh, this movie is definitely about single parents getting together and a child bringing them together. Only a child is a robot. Anyway, here's the part of the movie where the, where the child's siblings that were also made in a factory come in to frag his ass and everybody else still alive in the house. And yes, that includes you, Fisher Stevens. So, in a plot that is totally got every, all, all the people that eventually worked for Sega in 1999 when they created Sonic Adventure 1 and had the plot about the robot who came to life because of a reason that totally wasn't a lightning strike, but for argument's sake, let's say it was, and has to destroy all of his brethren because they are not fully sentient like him and they're therefore inferior and dangerous and need to be killed that plot. That plot's also in this movie, so because they aren't alive like him, um, number five can frag their asses by armaments, rockets, uh, farming equipment, and of course, gold-fashioned guns, which he pulls and shoots them and says, and like, quotes Dirty Harry, go ahead and make my day, partner, ha ha ha, bang, and he shoots number two in the friggin' right where his processor is, knocking him out of commission. But that's okay. They'll, they didn't disassemble him. They just killed him with a bullet. That's great. And I, I'll spare you the gory details, dear audience. It's just stuff like that for 20 minutes. We've had our romance. We've had our quaintness. We've had our Fisher Stevens speaking in an Indian accent for 40 goddamn minutes. Now we got violence that is bloodless but still carnage which is really what gets asses in seats and what the people in the boardroom that cooked up this film clearly had in mind when making this like we couldn't shoot et we had to have him wither away how can we make it so we can have blood and guts without them being blood or guts and they realized the answer was make him robots and make the blood battery fluid or hydraulic fluid and have that like drain out of things and 
conveniently place the arteries. Well, no, conveniently place the, the lines where human arteries are. They're basically human as is, except they have that fluid and the fluid spills everywhere. Like, it's almost as bad as Inspector Gadget, except none of it's blood, so they absolutely... I don't even think they got a PG-13 on this. They got a PG rating because there's no blood, there's no swearing, there's just a nice little robot who's an allegory for a child who uh, shoots people. And by people, I mean robots. There, none, of the, none of the people that were there were actually harmed. Um, I'm pretty sure he's following the Asimov rules of robotics, so he can destroy other robots, but he can't actually shoot the government contractors. But because he learns stuff from John Wayne movies or cookbooks or maybe, I don't know, Home Alone wasn't out yet, so I don't know what movies were on, but he um, was able to give quips. Yeah, mama was a snowblower and things like that. And the, the Nova Corp people in charge are looking at him saying, get, damn, he's good. Remember to play movies because apparently movies make you violent even if you're a robot. If we want to continue being government contractors, let's go do all of that magnificent stuff. And they're just taking vociferous notes, just like the people in Sega and all the people that made Furbies are all taking notes sitting in the audience and ready to drop those cultural icons on us a decade plus later. Uh, eventually the military chicken shits out and tries to fire a nuke at, um, the farmhouse. And it's that point when number five learns the true meaning of sacrifice and he activates his jetpacks, much to the horror of Stephanie and hot science guy. Hot science guy shouts, "Ye can fly! And he flies towards the nuke to save the day. And his departing words to our heroes is, Yes, and I can die too! And then he grabs the uh, the nuke as it's flying towards there, sends it into the stratosphere, and says something about Superman. And everyone in the audience starts crying. <laughs> then all the pieces land everywhere. The military realizes what monsters they were. And said, Well, that takes care of that. I guess he got disassembled after all, yeah, disassembled to death, and the pieces just rain down and clatter on the roof, and everyone just kind of has a tear and a cry. But uh, overnight, uh, the robot puts itself back together, and then the next morning, by the way, uh, no, the next morning, Stephanie and Hot Science Guy, who stayed together overnight, by the way, much to their surprise, have found... Um, number five reassembled himself. It may have been three days later. Again, Christ allegories. And then uh, he says, I'm still here, everybody, and I'm still alive. And then um, they say, wow, it didn't take lightning at all. We're together, and you can live here, I guess, as long as we don't tell your creators or the government or the military or Fisher Stevens or anybody about what's going on, then you can stay here and be our surrogate child. We're getting married, by the way. And, and then number five says, Well, all I need is a name. And because I'm a robot and really smart, I'm going to call myself Johnny. Yeah, Johnny Five. This really was a not long-lasting movie timeframe-wise. I guess that's what you call a short circuit. And then the book closes. All-Star starts playing 15 years early. 
No, I'm just kidding. It doesn't actually play All-Star. It plays something by Kenny Loggins because every single movie made in the 80s has music by Kenny Loggins over the closing credits. Book goes back on the shelf. The end. Final thoughts on Short Circuit. Okay, I, I know I dropped the phrase, everything is derivative, a lot on this series, but I mean, on this podcast, and it's absolutely true. Like, there really aren't original concepts, but there's things that can be knocked off of other concepts and then spun into their own independent films. So admittedly, a thing about a robot that is a Christ allegory and also a child allegory, while on itself original, is in fact derivative of E.T., and I will stick to that. And I mean, anything that is a Christ allegory is obviously derivative of the Bible, but I mean, this is a an example of that, and the it was really around this time that while I do say everything is derivative, it, this was the beginning of stuff obviously coming from the same five-ish movies, and this has definitely got footprints of E.T. all over it. I mean, there, there used to be a time pre-Spielberg when the only derivative aspect of stuff was just thematic elements. So, because, I mean, like, think about, like, Halloween specials. Like, there weren't any before 1966. That was when we got Great Pumpkin. And then from there, every network had to have their Halloween special, like Grinch Night or uh, Disney Halloween, which, that came out in the 80s, but the, the point was, stuff like Short Circuit or Gremlins or anything like that popping up that soon after E.T. and having that similar stench is a real trope of the 80s, and I I like that a lot more than just straight up doing reboots nowadays, and seriously, I do not think they can ever reboot Short Circuit, nor do I think anyone has an interest in it, but, I mean, there is a lot of temptation probably to say, oh, what if we made Alexa the Movie? Okay, cool, it didn't uh, activate when I said that name. I don't think I have that particular AI on my phone, but, uh, hmm. Uh, it's a novel, original thing. It is a distinctly 80s movie, and I guess it can be appreciated for that, and I definitely skewed the amount of coverage the movie got. I'm pretty sure I spent nine minutes on a five-minute scene somehow, but uh, that's the way things roll on this podcast. It's what I remember. Like, a lot of this movie was rampant commercialism, which is totally an 80s trope because that's while 70s was the decade of the auteur 80s was shameless commercialism and a fair amount of funding for original movies which at the end of the day short circuit is an original movie i know i say this stuff about things being derivative but it is not it takes enough pieces that it makes it its own and it's a distinct movie that stands on its own like what else are you going to have about Uh, a robot that comes to life and brings charm and love into a community. At least not for another 13 years, that's for damn sure. So good job on doing that. Um, Oh, wait, never mind. Terminator 2 did it seven years later. That's the difference. (laughs) The existence of Short Circuit made Terminator from the ultimate killing machine to the ultimate saving machine because people wanted robots to be lovable in a post-short circuit world. So, good job. You guaranteed Terminator would be a franchise for 
over 30 years at this point, over 35 now, because you managed to make Arnold the hero because people wanted to love robots. Congratulations, Derivativeness Strikes Again. Um, nice job on that frickin' Fisher Stevens as Apu, or whatever his name is. Uh, I, I say Apu because it's the exact same problem that The Simpsons had with Hank Azaria playing Apu for 27 years, being a white person playing an Indian and just trying to pass it off because, oh, hey, his voice is different from ours, so that makes for comedy. But um, this was pre-90s, at least with Apu, even in early seasons, they tried to give him reasonable backstory and actually had the language correct when he did speak some of that. But that's not what it's about. It's still problematic. It's still gratuitous. And thank God all that's gone. But, I mean, it's not gone. But, I mean, the for the most part, it's not accepted for white people to play people that aren't white. Unless, of course, you're Scarlett Johansson. But shut up about that. I just, I can't keep talk, I keep talking myself in the hole and saying, oh, except for this, except for that. For a one-person podcast show, with an exception of when celebrities show up, uh, I certainly keep talking myself out of saying things. It's rather astonishing and quite cool. Uh, yeah, it's Short Circuit. It's a movie. It's the 80s. It's built in the shadow by a diff- opposing studio of things. And I feel like Inspector Gadget, the movie that came out in 87, um, is more in the shadow of Terminator than actually Short Circuit. I don't think it's supposed to be a lovable robot thing so much as it is a machine and the human aspects of it. Also, uh, I don't know why I... There was something about Blade Runner I was supposed to mention in here earlier in the movie. Uh, I'll eventually make an episode of this podcast that's stuff that I remember that I forgot, that I remembered... And I'll stick it in there, but this is mostly a reference for myself. Figure out why the hell I was talking about Blade Runner. Uh, it's machines that think they're people. Right, that's the reference. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, well, nothing more to say on that one. It's a good movie. Thanks for requesting it, whoever you are. I hope you can listen to this podcast and tell your friends and maybe even make an appearance on this podcast as I'm starting to weigh the option of getting guest stars um, other people to co-do episodes with me. And that might be down the road a little ways, but if you're listening to this because I made this episode for you and you're adorable like that, consider it. Also consider liking, subscribing, and all those delightful things uh, so I can have more people listen and give input. Delicious, delicious input on this series and more creative ideas for episodes. I had a lot of fun doing this one, and I hope you had a lot of fun listening to it. I'll be back next week with more 80s horror stories. Uh, But until that time, keep those cameras safely. America's Funniest Home Video reference. That's not even the 80s, except when it was. Look, eh. It's going to be a long month full of surprising nostalgia. And I hope to stick around for it. But until that next week, I say goodbye and toodles. And all those farewell phrases. Bye-bye.